welcome to the Voice Equals Power podcast, where we explore the big question, how does an artist find their voice? I'm your host, Nicholas Prolak. If you like what you hear today, you can keep up to date with my travels through Sonic Space at my website, nicholascrolak.com or on Instagram at Nicholas underscore Crowley. My guest today is pianist and vocalist V. Shane Frederick. He's not only one of my favorite vocalists on the Philly scene, he's one of my favorite vocalists anywhere. He's got this old-school sensibility that melds with a modernist sense of adventure into a kaleidoscope of jazz history that is uniquely his. Of all of the vocalists I've ever heard, nobody sounds like Vishane. He can really keep musicians and audience members on their toes and hanging on every note. He just released his first album, Love Song, which you absolutely have to check out. on the show we've been talking back and forth for a little bit trying to trying to figure out a time so i'm glad this all worked out we're here in my kitchen in germantown <laughs> no better place let's go let's do it no better place we've got the summer bugs in the in the garden there right chirping we got my dog dixie chilling here um i wanted to start out quickly talking about fashion <laughs> Okay. Because I think, I think uh, fashion and is kind of under thought about in the jazz community sometimes. Hmm. Or, or just visual presentation is, is underrepresented, especially uh, among students. Okay. When they're kind of figuring stuff out. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of the higher level players have figured this out. Mm. Such as yourself, uh, Tim Warfield, mm-hmm. Justin Faulkner, to name a few. Yeah. Of um, so I like to pick people's brains about fashion and kind of how it relates to music. That's a, a source of infinite um, interest in my mind. Um. So I guess for me. Uh... The way I approach it, and even the music, is from the historical aspect of, you know, you had the gangsters, the well-traveled people, the people who um, liked nice things, um, as a part of the cornerstone of music. And I think of all the the figures who really had impactful place in everything that we think of as jazz over the long term. You know, um, Duke Ellington, I think of all these people. I think of Pinstripes, I think of Harlem. I think of New Orleans, I think of dressing up, presentation, and the energy that you put in um, your presentation is also the same energy that goes into what you put into the music. So I think for me, it's, it's, it's part of, before you even get to the microphone, the way you look as you're approaching the microphone reflects the energy you're bringing to the music, in my mind. And I think people that you mentioned who are fantastic, I'm, I'm amazed to be in the company of some of those people. You know, Tim Warfield, I mean, I, you know, the double-breasted suits and the pinstripes and the patterns and the, you know, the flair. That's, that's the part of the cultural history um, of the music, which is relevant. Mm-hmm. Do you have a, uh, do you have a, a certain pre-show ritual hmm. that goes, or kind of some sort of preparation, mental preparation uh, that 
perhaps uh, intersects with uh, fashion, such as like how you get ready or how you pick pick an outfit? Um, I dress how I feel, specifically mm -hmm. when I'm going to be on stage. Mm -hmm. But that's the extent of my fashion preparation. The rest mm -hmm. of my preparation is like, how does my body feel? Mm -hmm. How does my voice feel today? Do I need to do extra warming up? Do I need to drink some tea, water, or, or whatever? What am I going to do to get to the loose place where I can play? Mm -hmm. um, so I think I think less about fashion than most people think I do because my look, as it were, is um, can be I guess interesting I guess or, or whatever it is. So people associate that with me so much so that if I'm dressed down, people are like, "Hmm, you're dressed down today. This is strange." <laughs> Because, you know, I throws it on. That's what I do, you know. But, I mean, it's, for me, it's like kind of a second thought, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. So you're, you are primarily um, a vocalist, but your piano playing is, like, super dope. <laughs> so, and I didn't think I realized how good it was till somewhat recently since we, we had played a couple uh, gigs together. Yeah. And, and I had played with you many times before, but it was always as you were as a vocalist. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, how long have you been playing piano, and how do you how do you think about <laughs> both those at two the same sides? time? Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. yeah, I guess the the point is I'll answer the second part first. Um, you can't think about both at the same time, as in like you're thinking about them simultaneously because we have one brain so for me I'm synthesizing uh, a sound I'm synthesizing like uh, or rather I have a goal in mind and if I'm not doing it with my voice I want it to happen with my piano um, and you know I, I like to hit the mark as much as possible but I think about uh, you know I'm not the first person you know I think about people who I believe accompanied themselves um, quite prodigiously, or sang for themselves while they were playing. Uh, you know, you have the Shirley Horns and uh, the Nat King Coles, Carmen McRae. Um, I've seen Sarah Vaughan sit down and sing and play at the same time. There are those people. Um, so it's not unprecedented. Um, it's very rare. I mean, you know, if I don't have to think about playing, obviously it frees me up vocally a little bit more to just go a little to the left a little bit more than I would. Because if I'm playing, you know, if I want to do something five over four, I can't do that while I'm playing as, as easily. I mean, because it's hard enough just to think about it, right? It's it's hard to be out when you're doing both and you have to hold a whole section down to or be part of that section. Whereas if you're just a vocalist, um, I shouldn't say just, but if you are only singing and there's a trio or whatever accompany, accompaniment behind you, you are a little freer to really go there with that. So... Um, but when you're doing it at the same time, you are one entity, you're one body, and you are pushing everything. And everything has to be in complete union so much so that it's not something you're thinking about. Um, not to say you're not thinking about what are the harmonies and the changes and the rhythm, but you can't be so in your brain with it. It's hard to be in your brain singing, in your brain with the lyric, you know, doing all these things at once. It's, it's so intense. Mm -hmm. So the more you do it, the more I have done it, I'll say that. The more I've done it, the freer and the more comfortable I've gotten doing both. Uh, it doesn't happen instantly, though. Yeah. So with that said, my mother plays piano. Uh, she's a, a gospel pianist uh, church. My mother doesn't read music. Um, my introduction, I saw what was happening, but then it was like my father bought me a keyboard when I was about 18. Mm -hmm. And I sat in my basement and just kind of plucked out some stuff. I think the first couple of songs I really learned how to play were songs I loved, which were like Round Midnight and Misty. Mm -hmm. And this was like getting the sheet music, figuring stuff out, and just, you know, really rudimentary stuff. Um, and that was me going off of what I heard, what I knew, what I saw, and trying to synthesize that. And it kind of went from there. I did piano bar stuff for a while, as in working in a piano bar, but doing like jazz standard stuff. Mm -hmm. So we'll call it Great American Songbook stuff. And I, I started doing that when, let's say, 2008-9. Um, there were a few piano bars I had played at then. And again, it just got me more comfortable playing and singing. Mm -hmm. So now I can do restaurants and stuff like that and sit down and just do the whole thing myself, right? And I just recently started adding a bass player to it. Mm -hmm. Because before it would just be a solo thing. I would accompany other vocalists. I would sing for myself. 
And then I got, you know, this gig at this restaurant. And it's like, oh, it's a trio gig. This is interesting. This is going to stretch out my trio playing skills. And I still have to sing. So, like, I got to have all of it happen at the same time. So it's, it's a great exercise for me to be able to do that. Yeah. And you do it very well. A lot of the repertoire that you use um, on that gig is is an old, like an older uh, Great American Songbook. I mm-hmm. would say teens, 20s. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have a way of making those sound, those songs sound very now <laughs> you yeah. know and also in in the way you sing uh full dis- disclosure uh you sing in my band as yes well. i do uh and uh, <laughs> that's a thing i've always liked about your singing was that it sounds of this other era and of right now mm-hmm. at the same time so how do you approach that? I think a good song is a good song. And when you kind of get over yourself and over like when the song was written, you can figure out what you feel about the song, what the song means. Because I guess what, what makes it contemporary and timeless at the same time is interpretation. And the only way you can interpret something is for you to understand it, to sympathize with it, to like digest it and then give it back to people. And I like to pick songs that people know that they didn't know they knew. Mm-hmm. Like that kind of classic timeless, wow, I haven't heard this in 40 years. My grandmother used to listen to this song. But again, there's something on it, something inside of it and the way it's done, it's all in the dismount. It, it's, the way that it's done, it is, is if um, it exists today, it just came out, but it's something you've known forever. Um, because I'm not doing it in a very dated kind of like a pastiche like oh I'm a 1930s singer look at me you know Mm -hmm. because we know those you know we've experienced that where someone is a complete relic and they're not really um, actually interpreting the material they're just really regurgitating the material I'm not really a regurgitator even like my most favorite songs I don't do it exactly the same way every time because I might feel it different today Um, and I have to, I have to sing the lyric and the story. I have to sing the story. I have to, to interpret that story each time I do it. Otherwise, for me, it doesn't resonate properly. So, and this is how I feel today. So this, it's going to sound like today. It might have been written 1919. Yeah. It might have been written 1927. Eh, you know, we'll live. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there yeah. was, um, on your newest album, Love Some, yeah. one of the tracks that, I'm actually playing on full disclosure. Mm-hmm. Um, that was an old song too, right? Correct. And, and you did that in a totally different style. Yeah. And that that sounded like like to me when I first heard it, it sounded like a like a Stevie Wonder hmm. song or something. Yeah. I was like, is this some Stevie Wonder B side I never heard? Right. And yeah, I've always really enjoyed that. Um, I want to kind of cycle back a little bit to the singing and playing and this also actually I think relates to um, playing older songs and selecting material mm-hmm. um, this is a question that I ask almost all all my guests on the podcast and was actually I actually pitched this as a uh, uh, to a couple like newspapers and zines and magazines and stuff as a column yeah and the column was there's going to be one question, hmm. and it's going to be called, how do you hear? Huh. And it was going to be um, just people that hear have to hear things for a living. Mm. How do you hear? Answer it any way you want. Um, hmm. But what is the process of kind of hearing in, in the moment Whew. for you? Yo, that's a, that's a, that's, that's a real <laughs> question. Yeah. How, how do you hear? hearing in the moment. Um, it, it depends on so many things for me because um, the type of vocalist that I am, and you've seen, if like if you do something I'm not expecting, I'm gonna look at you. Whether it's good or bad, you know, I react vocally. Well, first of all, facially I'm gonna react. I'm gonna look at you like, oh, that's interesting, and give you a look. And if it's not quite right, I'm gonna look at you and then we'll have a little, a, we'll have like a, a brief moment. But if I'm singing, so if I'm just playing, I'm gonna react visually but if I'm singing 
what I sing may react to directly to the bass note because I'm in my in my sphere I'm hearing the bass or what I think the bass should be or could be because I'm thinking about the harmonic structure of it thinking about the rhythm I'm thinking melodically all of this all at one time which is a lot it's huge it's so much to think about but I think that's how I'm able to do what I do vocally which is I think quite interesting compared to what a lot of people do vocally mm -hmm. because I'm responding to so many things including there's a voice in my head whether it's an actual voice or an instrument whatever the melodic line is and whatever the context is and I'm just reacting to all these things it's like I am the rubber ball in a in a room that's sealed off full of rubber walls and I'm just bouncing from wall to wall ceiling to ceiling um, so my hearing is reactive hearing um, and I can drive it too of course you know I'll drive things in certain ways but a lot of the times I'm just trying to make everything make sense um, for the listener uh, because it's about the journey and that's part of the interpretation for me how do how do we make all of this make sense for the person who's just like they have to suffer by listening to this so how can we make them make this you know how can we make sense for them yeah what is a or who was a a mentor for you kind of helping you find your sound whether you actually studied with the person or not hmm. I, that's a deep question. Um, so for a brief period of time, not that it was developing my sound so much as my work ethic um, and just my concept of listening. So Trudy Pitts helped develop my concept of listening. Um, and I was a super, super young jazz vocalist and she knew that I was trying to play. She had never heard me play. She was, you know, she would ask me a few questions. Hey, you gigging, baby? Keep on working, you know, da 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 da. And I just saw her tough love. I saw the way she curated musical experiences and worked with other young musicians as a mentor to them directly. I kind of just watched and saw what she did. And going to jam sessions and seeing a lot of musicians, I was hanging out at Ortlieb's and all the spots. I was hitting the spots and watching the way things actually work. Um, I was so deep in my listening bag that by the time I decided to do things, I had um, a nice amount of vocabulary uh, as far as artistic vocabulary, as far as how to process a song. And I mean learning from the, the interpretive masters. Carmen McRae is an interpretive master. Um, Eddie Jefferson, you know, there are certain people who interpret a song like no one else. Billie Holiday even, you know. And Billie Holiday did not have by any means a quote unquote perfect voice, but she was pure interpretation and you felt every lyric she delivered because she delivered it from like the bottom of her body to the top of you know her head. Um, so I watched that. Now as far as my voice, because I have an interesting voice, and I think frankly a lot of the male vocalists that I've heard in the jazz world, uh, there are fewer, there are fewer male vocalists. And all, the female vocalists always had better instruments, better repertoire, um, more freedom. You know, I can, I can name decent, like, classic male vocalists, um, but I never studied them to say, oh, this is what I want to sound like. Mm -hmm. A lot of people hear me say, oh, you remind me of Nat King Cole, you remind me of this one. I hear Al Jarreau, I hear Bobby McFerrin. And they, I guess what they may hear is the interpretive spirit. Mm -hmm. Or for Nat King Cole, we have a similar kind of a tonal color, I guess. But we make different choices. You know, I have a lot more color. I make up more interesting choices. Nat was really clean, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I kind of go there a little bit more than Nat did. But, you know, all masterful people. And I've listened to them, you know. I don't have, like, an arsenal of Nat King Cole CDs that I grew up <laughs> listening to. Honestly, I think I have one. You know, I've definitely heard the bulk of his music, the bulk of his repertoire. But there's so many vocalists to listen to, you know. You can talk about the Arthur Price Ox and the Billy Eckstein and the, you know, the, um, the Joe Williams. And I can name all these people. As far as influencing my sound, I don't know who influenced my sound as much as watching people influence my artistry. Shirley mm -hmm. Horn, you know. Um, and that's more about their interpretive spirit, their willingness to, oh, you know what, let's drop tempo. Let's do this at 50 beats per minute, mm -hmm. you know. I'm all for it. Let's do it. Let's yeah. do a super slow ballad. Let's go, you know. Uh, and then the Betty Carters. Let's do it at 220. Let's do it at, you know, 250. I don't know. Yeah. You know, so I, I dig that too. Um, just watching people explore a little bit. Yeah. People that, just give you permission to do what you want to do. 
Absolutely. And yeah. that, that was a, a, a big reason why I wanted you to sing with my band when I formed it and uh, was starting to get into the idea of writing lyrics. And there's a song uh, that's going to be on the, on the new album that's going to be out at some point whenever <laughs> those forces align where we the first time we did it it was a, it was a ballad and the first time we did it it was like the whole band playing and it to me it didn't feel right at all mm-hmm. and i was really bummed about it because it was my first like lyrics to a song that i wrote yeah that i, I was really excited about it and it, it just just didn't feel right and i couldn't figure it out and then i was like Oh, it's because it's the whole band's playing. Mm. It just needs to be V. Shane yeah. and Tim Bray on the piano. Let's take a rubato. Let's it's go. Just rubato, yeah. this duo for you guys yeah. to do. And on the album recording, I just got the masters back, by the way. I don't yes. know if I told you that. I think you did. Yeah. But that song <laughs> is is so popping. And it's, you know, 100% interpretation and just... Just going for it. Nice. Um, you mentioned uh, coming up in the in the Ortlieb's era. Mm-hmm. I always like to. Is there any any kind of vignettes or stories or formative experiences that kind of jump out at you? Was this? Are you, you're talking uh, Ortlieb's uh, before they sold? Yeah, I mean, and I wasn't there a long time in that mm-hmm. period. Um, so, even you know, back r- rewind it a little bit further. Um, I dropped out of college. Uh, I was 18 when I dropped out. I had done a couple of years. I started super early. Came back to Philly. I was hanging out at Orleans before I was 21, mm-hmm. having a little something on the side at the bar. They mm-hmm. didn't know that. Um, <laughs> they, they weren't at that point, Carter. Uh, at least me, anyway. I had my little charts. What I learned, what I saw, um, that was my entrance into like the jazz jazz jam world too mm-hmm. so being prepared i learned how to be prepared bring your charts um i learned that just because you think that you should sing it in this key at home when you get to the place and it's, you realize it's a different key you're like oh this is not the key i want to do this <laughs> yeah. in. i learned how how to be gracious i've learned how other musicians can be gracious and not you know I've, i learned about showmanship on that stage and this was eh, 2000 four, three, four, five, six, somewhere around there, mm-hmm. you know, so with, you know, Roger Preto and um, Sid Simmons and, you mm-hmm. know, you had Byron Landham and all, you know, I'm just, all that, that era, I, I was there and like the superstars would pop through and do a thing and then regular old people and then like newbie me that no one knew would come up and bring a chart and try to do something interesting and, and you know, and inventive. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I learned about the exploration of it at that place in real time. It's one thing to do it at home, right? But um, even, you know, I know a lot of our colleagues who have this degree and that degree. It's one thing to learn it in an institution or in a setting, but it's another to do it live in front of people and among professional colleagues and just to see how it comes off. Yeah. There's nothing, you know, you learn a lot on the bandstand. Mm -hmm. You learn a lot on the bandstand. So that was a lot of my formation right there. Absolutely. That that always reminds me of a... when you hear comedians, stand-up mm-hmm. comedians talking about yeah. the the um, getting the direct, immediate feedback from the audience <laughs> by doing stand-up, like there's just nothing yep. like that. Uh, when I when I moved to Philly, uh, La Rose was kind of that for me because mm-hmm. uh, Ortlieb's had uh, sold and they were doing a jam session on Tuesdays, but it wasn't the same. It wasn't it wasn't wasn't really the same. So. Um, but going from a very small school where the people who study jazz kind of thought they were just kind of better than everybody else, and then you go to a place like La Rose, and you have, you have like amateur musicians who are way better than you, mm-hmm. you know, who should be professionals mm-hmm. and have every ounce of ability to be professional, and they're just they know so much more than you. That's such a great learning experience. And you have, you know, people who've never played a note in their life, but, you know, looked after Ray Brown's bass. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. 
you know, they, they've been around and they, they know when you're good and when you're not. They know the music. Yeah. Because the music is, you can't like, it is intimately connected to the culture. So if you come from outside the culture of the music and just go into the music, people are like, they can tell. Yeah. You know, people can tell. And it's the, that's the listener, the listener, that's the audience. You're not just playing musicians. I think it's sometimes in these like insulated environments, um, we're used to playing to ourselves, and a lot of times we just learn this stuff. But you play to the old heads who've known yeah. this for 70 years, they'll, you know, let them be their arbiter. Yeah. <laughs> and they'll let you know how they feel about you. Yeah. That's what it is. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, what, what are a couple key things you listen for in other musicians? Either people that you, like, you're playing with, or, mm-hmm. or if you're at a jam session, mm-hmm. or it could be really any situation, just... I look for people who um, I can tell are listening to the other people um, because jazz is very interactive. Um, and you can tell when a drummer is just off in La La Land, not paying attention. You know, with music, there's a natural curve. There's a give and take. And if we're not all giving and taking or if whoever's on the bandstand is not doing that, it's not successful. I don't care how great one person is. You, in a band, you really is great as everyone is. And if you're not helping everyone be great and finding the groove, locking, you know, takes big ears to lock and make something make sense overall. You might have great ideas, but everyone has to be with you, right? And no one likes the guy who, I guess, is the showboat and everyone else is in a whole different direction. Because overall, it doesn't help, doesn't help the case. Because mm-hmm. we're talking about an overall narrative. Who, you know, what's the story? How's the band? Even there's no lyric. Even if there's not a lyric, you know, what's where, what's the vibe of this song? And is everyone locking or are we just kind of willy-nilly left and right and we need to spend some more time together, right? Mm-hmm. So if I'm listening to a band, I'm picking out those pieces and sometimes it just comes together like a good sauce and sometimes it needs to sit on the stove a little longer, <laughs> right? And uh-huh. just kind of the flavors need to meld a little bit. What is a... What is an ideal practice day like for you <laughs> or practice yeah. time period or whatever so I know also from being a writer who hasn't written in a long time you're supposed to write all the time not just when you're inspired mm-hmm. to do so um, because it's a discipline and it's not just a fleeting moment of oh I'm inspired I'm going to write something um, so it really just takes doing it constantly um, and again, doing it even when you're not inspired, just sitting down and trying to get to the place where you, you get some music out of it. Um, but unfortunately for me, it happens, the best time happens when I, I can't get this song out of my head and I really need to get to the gristle of it. I need to get to the marrow of this thing. So let me figure this out. That's the best time I have with that. Otherwise it doesn't come out as well. So I'm, I'm working toward that discipline of just constantly doing it. Of course, because I'm gigging a lot. I have to just do it, like every day, you know, okay, let me get this money, I have, I have a gig, I already got paid, so, you know, three, five times a week, go, 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 let's, let's work this until we get some music out of it, right, even when you don't feel like it, you're tired, whatever, you didn't sleep a lot, you gotta do it, people are here, let's make some music and um, bring music to the people, so the constancy of it, um, I guess that is also part of the practice of it for me just being um, repetitive, being constant, being diligent, and just going to it every day, again and again and again, even on my off days. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what is a an instrument that is neither voice mm-hmm. nor piano mm-hmm. that you feel a, a special kinship with? Bass. Bass. Easily the bass. Yeah. Easily. Not that I want to play the bass, but um, I hear the bass very well, and I react to the bass. Um, I love the bass. I would actually pick up guitar. I want to learn regular guitar. That's something I've been playing with for years, the idea of learning guitar. But the bass is an instrument. I could do a whole show just with the bass. No piano, just singing bass. I think we've done that. I I feel like we have, right? (laughs) We've done that a couple times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) I, I totally would do that. I totally would do that. Easily, easily, easily. Yeah. Because the bass is the foundation. It is the harmonic foundation. Mm-hmm. I'll say that. Absolutely. Yeah. See, I thought you were going to say 
I thought you were gonna say trombone. Trombone. <laughs> sometimes you do the slide. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, with your with your arm yeah. while you sing. Yeah. Um, and because because my my uh, uh, kinship um, spirit animal uh, other instrument yeah. <laughs> is is the trumpet. I love the trumpet. Love the trumpet. Because uh, I I feel like it has a similar um, a similar kind of you have to hear it mm-hmm. to play it mm. thing. It has, also has a similar kind of attack. Yeah. Obviously, the sustain is a lot different, but the attack is pretty similar. And and the range is kind of similar, too, mm-hmm. if you account for the them starting in different octaves. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, the lowest note on the trumpet... Mm-hmm. Um, I'm actually not exactly sure, but <laughs> I've never come across a trumpet solo mm-hmm. that runs out of low notes. Okay. And also the the high register is also kind of like thumb position for bass. Uh, so. Uh, so basically, they have similar tessituras. Yes. Okay. Exactly. Huh. I'm always interested. I need to, and so this is something that a composer, someone who studied composition, would know. Oh, well, the range of this instrument is, but mm-hmm. you know, they have all this stuff in their brain. Yeah. I don't. I yeah. kind of know where things are a little bit, but you know, someone like who's really just a straight up composition person, they know all this mm-hmm. just fun stuff. Eh, yeah, I don't. yeah, I don't. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> my 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 go to is if it's if it's in the in inside the the staff. I'm yeah, cool. you're cool, right? <laughs> it doesn't matter. What Unfortunately, that's not always the case, but it sounds great, right? Yeah. <laughs> what do you like most about the younger generation of musicians? Interesting question. Um, I think their ability or their desire to um, kind of forsake certain standard practices is both a plus and a minus. And I think that's with every young generation. Every young generation is trying to burst at the seams of whatever the tradition is. So, you know, you learn the form and then you, like, forsake it, right? And so they're bringing in a different vibe, a different flavor. Of course, a lot of instrumentation has changed and you know, electric, and now we got the the drums imitating the machine, imitating the drum, imitating the machine. There's a lot of that happening. So, I mean, you know, we just bring who we are to the music. And I think with that, this, this generation is the same as a few generations have been in that we constantly just bring ourselves to the music, the good ones anyway. We bring ourselves to the music, so I love that about the younger generation. I kind of wish that there were more of them in the music, but I think that's part and parcel of, you know, arts programs or lack thereof, access to instrumentation, lack of encouragement, and just like life circumstances. Like if life is crazy and, you know, family structures are changing and school systems are changing, not everyone's going to have access to the training that it takes to be able to mm-hmm. gain the facility to, you know, operate an instrument. Um, but the right ones are still coming. There's, there are those who are still coming to the music in their own way. I I was I like what you said about how them trying to forsake the some of the things. I, I like how I feel like we're all kind of catching up on this, but how they're willing to forsake the way marketing has been done before. <laughs> I think that that's pretty neat. It's like, hey, we could just do this with these little glowing rectangles that we all have. Right. A couple months ago, you came out. With your album. Correct. And this was, this is your first album. Accurate. And it's called Lovesome. And yeah. it's great. And I highly recommend it. But I remember talking to you, it was after, I think after a, after a gig at some, I can't remember what the exact situation was, but we were talking one night after a gig and you said something about Oh yeah, I want, I want to do this album, and the next thing I know, boom, it was done, and, it was <laughs> and I was like, "Wait, whoa, 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 whoa!" Because I know it, that doesn't happen like that. Yeah. Um, so I know there's a lot of stuff that goes on into it. So when when did you get the idea, the inspiration, and what was the process like for you? So I mean, it was it was overdue in a certain regard, but in the other regard. It happened right in the right time. Timing is everything. And so I can talk about there are 10 tracks on this album. 
And then of course I did a, a, a single after that, which is a whole different thing. But so I did the album, uh, 10 tracks. Of those 10 tracks, I think I used three that were already recorded in, in 2018. Actually, 2017, two were recorded. I left those completely whole. The two solo piano pieces, I recorded those at Rittenhouse Soundworks. Then another one I had recorded at another studio with a guitar trio. That was whole. I left that alone. And the other stuff, I kind of went back, redid some vocals on one tune. And I was like, oh, but I, I want to do this song. I don't want to do that song. And oh, I want to incorporate some larger arrangements by people who really know arranging. So I solicited the services of arrangers who are, you know, instrumentalists um, to do three other tunes. And got in the studio and recorded all of those like in February and March. I think the last one, was it? Yeah, was it March? It could have been the very end of March. By the end of April, everything was mixed, mastered, and April 29th, I was picking up hard copy CDs, and May 6th, everything was on iTunes and Spotify and bloop, 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 mm -hmm. yada, yada, yada. Um, one, I'm crazy. I'm driven. I'm crazy. Like, when I make a decision to actually do something, I'm going to do it. Nothing is going to stop me because... By the time I've really made that decision to do it, it's going to work. Like you, like literally, I'm going to do it. I'm going to die doing it, <laughs> but it's going to get done. And I guess I was in my mind fighting against the clock of Shane. Why haven't you done this already? What's wrong with you? Just do it. No one's going to give you money to do it. Mm -hmm. So I did like a, a pre-order campaign, but that was after it was pretty much it was done at that point. Mm -hmm. It was already mastered, and I was just waiting to pick up the CDs at that point. So this was me just literally selling it before it came out. Um, using my own hard-earned hard money, and I've been working a lot, day job, you know, gigging, 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 you know, going into the studio, paying for the studio time, mixing, mastering, paying musicians, you know, in food and or drink and cash, the whole deal, over a period of time to get it done. And I created a narrative arc with the material on it, solicited the service of graphic design persons and this like I did the whole thing myself because I realized no one was going to give me permission to do what I knew knew I needed to do mm -hmm. and what I wanted to do um, and when you get in that space like no one can stop you from doing it because you don't need permission to do it and you really just have to do it so how are you going to do it is a real question mm -hmm. um, yeah I'm kind of crazy but you got to be crazy that's you, the truth <laughs> you got to be a little crazy to do something like that completely independent I don't have a manager I don't have any of that you know stuff you know I'm just out here doing what I want to do and people see that and admire that and I think part of the surprise I think I thrive on the art of surprise too so even in my shows I do stuff that might surprise people and then just coming out with a CD like hey guys I have a CD coming out next week people are like what you know what I mean that's how it was yeah and it's like bam here's a CD and they're like yo this is a CD this graphic design, what is sun? Yeah. Where, what, who, what is going on? Photography, paying for photographers, the whole deal. You know what I mean? When I have a vision, I commit. You have to commit to the vision, and you know that, of course, as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I. I that's the thing I try to, when I talk to to younger players. Uh, on on whenever they ask for any advice, mm -hmm. that that's a huge part of it. Because human beings are real good at finding excuses. <laughs> and that's just part of our nature. And if you're waiting around for it to happen, yeah. you know, right. you just got to do it. Yeah, I mean, because some of us want permission or help. Yeah. And the thing is, no one's going to help. Some people might help you a little bit, but like literally, no one's going to help you do what you're supposed to do. Mm -hmm. So now what? What's your excuse? <laughs> like, what, like, how long are you going to sit and wait to do what you're supposed to be doing? Until you realize, oh, wait a minute, that didn't get, got, get done. Now it's 2019. Mm -hmm. And I'm still sitting here with material that I recorded. Because I have recorded before. I've been recording easily for different things. Philadelphia Jazz Project stuff. And I did a series of sessions for myself. When I started at Rittenhouse Soundworks, I did a whole session. I sat down at the piano. Me, myself, and I sang and played 12 tunes. Did just the whole thing. And then sat in the, in the booth with um, Jim. And had a glass of wine while he played her back and mixed it. And out of those 12 tunes, I still have, you know, all of that session, but two, for me, I said, i got to put this on this album. And I might go back and take some of the other stuff and mm -hmm. do something else with that, too. 
Um, but I was just doing that just to do that. Just because I wanted that experience of recording. I'm a live person, a live musician. I do the live stuff. But let's see what it's like in a studio. Mm -hmm. So I did those exercises. And they weren't terribly expensive. You know, you pay your money. A couple hundred here, a couple hundred there. And I said, no, I want to do a legit... I want to, like, get the, you know, the code. I want to get the scan code. I want to be on Spotify. I want to be out there. I want to be able to legitimately sell this and get whatever kind of money I'm going to get from creating music. So I'm on iTunes. Mm -hmm. Who knew? It took, like, two weeks to do it. You, mm -hmm. you know, give them your stuff. They put it on a CD, and the next thing you know, you're online. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, okay, cool. Pay for the, you know, the mechanical licenses, and there you go. Bam. Who's going to st no one can stop that. Yeah. And I didn't need a label. I didn't need anyone. I didn't need people in suits behind the table to say yes or no to what I wanted to do. Because I'm the guy in the suit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> At the piano doing it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I like that. I like that you didn't tell anybody about it. Right. You just did it. Uh, it was I, kind of bad marketing, but it was yeah. kind of also awesome marketing. No, it, it, I, I, I think that's good. I feel like that's good. I mean, I do that all the time. I feel like it's good for me personally hmm. to do that because once I start talking about something, I I feel like I'm less likely to to do it. It's like the thing that like, that I don't talk about, hmm. and I I'm just like it's in my head. I'm thinking about it all the time. Nobody knows about it, hmm. and then boom, I have a podcast. Hmm. Everyone's like, "What? You have a podcast?" <laughs> I didn't tell anybody about it. Right. Um, going up to it and yeah I, I, I feel like there's some sort of power in doing that maybe not for everybody but certainly for me so I do think there's a power in that I do because some things you have to allow to germinate you know mm -hmm. and you can't you can't tell everyone about what's about to happen because that that art of surprise really will get people like right in the jaw yeah you know and look what happened in, in less than a year Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah what is this might tie in into this um is, is there a musician life hack <laughs> that you employ are you serious yeah. oh my god a life hack no i'm out here what is that i'm the line from good times theme song you know scratching and surviving um <laughs> I'm just, you know, scheduling, like mm -hmm. meticulously scheduling, mm -hmm. you know, and as someone who has a full-time job and then will leave work and go to a four-hour gig, just timing literally every, every minute counts. Mm -hmm. um, and that's just a, a life, a life hack in general, yeah, a yeah, practical yeah. life hack. I found that out when I went back to school to finish my bachelor degree and I was working full-time, mm -hmm. taking 15, 16, 17 credits a semester. I scheduled my life down to like every 15 minutes. Bam, bam, bam. Got to do this. Got to do that. So by the time this came along, I was ready. I was ready to go. Um, keep your ears open. Have big ears. Mm -hmm. Say, hmm. I said yes a lot. And now I'm saying yes a little bit more judiciously. But I'm still willing to do things that um, make me a little unsettled. Because mm -hmm. a lot of times there is a pleasure in it. And I've, I have been, for instance, a couple weeks ago. Uh, Carol Faulkner hit me up and said, Hey, V-Shane, we love you, baby. Bootsy Collins is coming to town. He's going to be here Saturday. And we decided we want you to sing background, you know, we want you to be singing background with Bootsy. And at first I was like, what? Are you kidding? Are you, this, <laughs> none of this makes any kind of sense. In what parallel universe is this a yes? And I said yes. And I did it. And it was a very rewarding experience. Yeah. Not necessarily for the music itself, but for the experience. So I've learned to... If my reaction is like, oh, I'm scared, I, I shouldn't do that. Say so yes, probably. Yeah. That, that's a yes that I would have regretted, uh -huh. you know, um, had I not done that. And who, I mean, I don't know if anything else will come out of that. It could. Yeah. Um, maybe not. But that was an experience that no one can ever take away from me. Yeah. And there are photographs and video clips <laughs> to prove that it actually happened. I mean, it's completely illogical. Why would I be singing background with Bootsy Collins? But there I was. Dressed in all white, singing background, on like flashlight and all other kind of crazy stuff. Yeah. Why not? Absolutely, I, th I think that the 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 fear reaction is is really quite a powerful tool mm. to to navigate by. Like 
Mm-hmm. This scares me. Why does it scare me? I got to I got to I got to conquer that. Especially now I have to do it now, yeah, right? Exactly. Because you can you can actually use fear as a motivator to mm-hmm. do something instead of to not do something. Yeah. And the the best um responses will come out of that. Absolutely. Um that's there's a a, a book that I, I'm really into called the the War of Art. <laughs> yep. By Stephen Pressfield, and uh, he talks about that a lot. <laughs> the War of Art versus the Art of War, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that. And um, uh, yeah, it's a good book. The audio book is really great. I especially recommend it. He's kind of kind of like like this drill sergeant kind of voice. Mm-hmm. So it mm-hmm. gets gets me real pumped up. Dope. Um, <laughs> so. You got this album. You got the single. Can you talk about the single a little bit? Sure. It was birthed out of so one of the people I had contacted. Um, I contacted a few people to do arrangements for the original album, and um, I did Nzinga Banks, saxophonist uh, who lives in Cali now, who was from the Philly area. I was like, "Yo, Nzinga, I got a, tr- a song I want you to write an arrangement for." I hit up Molly Decost, violinist who lives here in the Philly area, and she did arrangements for two tunes. And I hit up Elliot Build. Elliot was super, super busy. And he was like, yo, I really want to, but I'm super stretched out right now. Um, and my timeline is this date. And I said, you know, Elliot, I'm going to circle back to you because in my mind, I needed this done yesterday. Mm-hmm. And I can't rush people and I'm not going to rush you. Mm-hmm. So I said, okay, cool. Timing. Decent. Um, CD came out. And I was like, Elliot, guess what? Mm-hmm. I decided to do something else. Like literally a month later. We, and he then was able to do it. The CD was out. And the original intention was to just do an EP, kind of market that, only digital. I didn't print that, obviously. It's just two tunes. Um, and I just wanted to just keep hitting people. Bam, music, more music. Ah, you thought I was done. Bam, more music. You know, that's mm-hmm. kind of the deal. And just use this as um, an, an additional foray into the digital world. So, I mean, that was just a marketing thing for me. It was, and, and I knew there was the same songs that I had told him I wanted him to do. He, he was able to pull it out. And we had a really great time in the studio doing something. I feel like it just it sounds fantastic. So I'm loving these collaborations. And I realize now I can call the right people and I can see like what people can do for, you know, mm-hmm. in the music and how we can work together. It's a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. I'm loving it. So what's next? What's the next surprise right hook? When I tell you, I mean, when I, when I find that, I'll tell you. I don't even know, honestly. I mean, because I, I can't just I can't do something else in the next month. Like I gotta I gotta slow, <laughs> slow the pace down a little bit. Yeah. Um, and just really focus on you know I had a video that just dropped uh, last week a music video. Mm-hmm. It's on YouTube and Facebook and da 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 da. And that's just like reiterating. There's an album. There's an album. There's music, which is just more of an international exposure in my mind. Or it could be that, and it's going to exist forever. Mm-hmm. This video is going to exist forever. Um, some a few other people have contacted me saying, "Hey, they want to do some visuals for me," and I'm like, "Sure, why not? You know, mm-hmm. if I got the money and you have the vision and I trust the quality of your work, let's go." So that's where I am now, just like continuing collaborations. I do want to continue to promote and market what I've already done instead of increasingly doing more work. Mm-hmm. And I'm still gigging a lot, so I don't have a lot of extra time to be in the studio right now. But um, there are a few things on the horizon. I want to do a lot more traveling. I don't know the first thing about touring an album, but I would love to tour a little bit of this album. Um, I've done a lot of stuff in this region, uh, you know, music fest, etc. But I do want to get this on a larger platform, even more so than it is already. Mm-hmm. I was happy that the um, the single that I released did get like marketed by Spotify, and it was on like radar release, blah 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 blah. And I had friends like in California and random people sending me screenshots of my single that popped up on their spot for like, guess what's out? Blah, 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 blah. So I'm like, dope. So this actually does kind of work. Okay, I get it now. Mm-hmm. I Now I know how this, because, you know, if you have people paying for it, they'll tell you how it works. But otherwise, you have to figure it out yourself, mm-hmm. right? So I know how the machine works a little bit. I want to just do more promotion of what already exists and figure out who's going to pay for my next thing, because I'm, <laughs> I'm not paying for another CD myself. Uh-huh. <laughs> I hear you. At this point, anyway. So where can uh, where can people find you? Uh, so my website vshane.com, Shane with the Y V S H A Y N E dot com. My music is on iTunes. Just Google V Shane Frederick is on iTunes and Spotify and Tidal and Amazon Music and 
all the digital, all that digital stuff. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter. I do tweet. I do Instagram. I actually do have a Snapchat that I don't use. Um, and it's all like under my name. I'm pretty accessible. My schedule is a public calendar of, you know, performances. Uh, do I have any cool performances coming up? I'm always at some art museum, always doing something at the African American Museum, the, you know, and I'm in Chicken Bone Beach Jazz Fest coming up, and Kelsey's in Atlantic City, and Eddie V's and South Jazz Club, and da 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 da. I'm all over, so find me. Very cool. Well, thanks for taking the time to hang out with me and be on the show, man. Thank you for allowing me to do so. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Voice Equals Power podcast. For me, this series is a labor of love. My goal is to help document the making of jazz history in this moment. If you have any suggestions about who you would like to hear on the show, drop me a line. Thanks for tuning in. I hope to hear from you soon.